I uh, enjoyed listening to, to uh, Pastor Jeremy's sermon last Sunday. Susan and I were sitting in an airport listening to it and then got on the plane and finished it before they could get the plane off the, off the runway. Uh, I would give it a, a, a three thumbs up, highly recommend you listen to sermon. Uh, it's an introduction uh, to the book of Hebrews that is, is quite thorough and scholarly. If you're new with us, welcome. You come in at the beginning of a series, which is the best, play to, best place to come in. And uh, you come in and just enjoy the whole series as we unpack uh, the characters of the Old Testament. I want to ask you two thesis questions to get started. Because I want you to be thinking about if your life pleases God. It's a pretty good question, right? If your life pleases God or not. And how do you know your life pleases God? A lot of people think their life pleases God because they have a cross in their house, come to church a few times a year, uh, but that's not really the game. That's not really what we're talking about. How do you know if your life pleases God and if your lifestyle glorifies Him and if He's approving of how you're conducting your life uh, as a human being and as a follower of Christ? So here's my two thesis questions. Let's get them on the table very quickly so you can start thinking about them. What is faith? This is something we're going to answer in just a moment. What is faith? I want you to be thinking about how you would answer the question, what is faith? The second thesis question is this, what is the result of living by faith? These two questions are the thesis of what we want to talk about. What is faith and what is the result of living by faith, living in faith, walking by faith? What is the result of that? Now, uh, whenever we study any literary work, the Bible is a literary work. It's actually 66 literary works or more put together, but it's a literary work. Uh, most of you have, uh, well, you've all been through high school, we studied literature, but you've been to the university where you took lit courses, and in poetry or American lit or world lit or whatever, uh, you took a literary piece, whether it's a poem, uh, a short story, a novel, whatever, and you did exegesis on the literary work. In other words, you analyzed it to try to figure out what the author is trying to communicate to you. We all on the same page here this morning? You know what I'm talking about. You, they presented you with something, said, read this, and we're going to do some analysis, exegesis. We're going to try to ask the right questions to figure out what the author is trying to communicate. So when you study any literary work, you have to ask questions. I'm going to call those exegesis questions. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? To whom did they write it? What point are they trying to make? What are they trying to communicate to their original audience? You begin to ask questions when you approach a piece of literature, and it's only when you can get those answers that you can determine what the message is for us today. So I want to be really careful with what I'm saying. Listen very carefully. Our interpretation can never be disconnected from the original audience. I want to say it another way. This one's noteworthy this morning. In other words, a Bible passage can never mean to us what it didn't mean to the original audience. Is that fair? Now, if you'll remember this, write this down it's in the notes out there in version. Email it to yourself and put it on the wall where you study your Bible. You'll stay out of trouble if you can remember this principle for doing exegesis on the Word of God. A Bible passage cannot mean something to you 
that it never meant to its original audience. Now, with that in mind, uh, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. This is where Jeremy started last week. It's like a long sermon put in print so that you can read it to, the, to a, a group of Jews, uh, author not certainly known, uh, and a lot of good guesses, but not certainly known because it doesn't say this is Paul. It doesn't say this is Barnabas. It doesn't say this is Aquila and Priscilla or, or Luke, but it's one of those. And they're writing to a, a group of people this beautiful sermon. And in this sermon, this is where we learn about living by faith. And for explanation on what is faith and how to live by faith, the preacher is going to take us all the way back to the book of Genesis, which was written by Moses, that this was their Bible. In other words, whoever's writing Hebrews doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He doesn't have that. It's being written in real time. His Bible, or her Bible, is the Old Testament. It's the writings of Moses. It's the prophets. And so when the New Testament writers want to explain to their audience the story of God and bring it up to current application... They always go back to the Old Testament characters and writings in order to bring the story of God forward into their present generation. So, Genesis was written by Moses. Let's get that off the table. Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Together, those five books are collectively known as the Pentateuch. So, like pentagram, pentagon, five, Pentateuch, the five books of the law, five books of Moses. And so, if you hear somebody say Pentateuch, You'll understand what they're talking about. They're talking about the opening five books that Moses wrote. So here's the exegesis questions then. Why did Moses write these books? Why did Moses write Genesis in particular is what I want to know this morning. Why was Genesis written? What is his point in writing the book of Genesis? And how does Genesis fit in with his other writings, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What is the story the Pentateuch is telling, and how does Genesis fit into that story? If you understand that, it's going to keep you away from a lot of conspiracy theories, and it's going to keep you away from a lot of questions that have no answer, that are just circular arguments. The main story that Moses is trying to tell is that God has a covenant people, God has a nation of people, God has a people called Israel, called the children of Israel, the Abraham, children of Abraham, uh, these are all synonyms. Israel, uh, God's people. God has a people that are in a covenant with Him which was made at Sinai. God has a covenant people called Israel. And He's taken them from bondage and slavery. We could even use the word exile. And He's taken them now to freedom and victory. They've met with God at Sinai. They've heard His voice. They've seen His manifestation in the pillar and the cloud. They've said to Moses, it terrifies us. Moses, you go talk to God on our behalf. Bring us the words from God and the Word of God. And all that He says to us, we will do it. It's like a marriage ceremony that happens at Sinai. And now Israel is realizing their frightful place as God's covenant people. And so Moses is writing Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy to tell them how to live in this, these are covenant rules, how to live in this marriage between them and God. And that's what these books are about. The question is, how does Genesis fit into that story? Well, everybody pay real attention right here. 
Genesis is the backstory to the story of Israel. In other words, if they're at Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and here's how you live for God, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the backstory to Israel is Genesis. Genesis is being written in order to answer the questions that Israel is asking in the wilderness wanderings. Who are we? How did we get here? Where did we come from? Why does God have a people? Why does God want a people? Well, why hasn't God always had a people? Well, what went wrong in the beginning prior to us being in slavery that God has no people? Why does God have no people? Why are all the nations idolatrous and there's no monotheistic Jehovah-worshipping, Yahweh-worshipping nation? What went wrong with humanity that you had to get us out of bondage and form us into a people and a covenant? Genesis was not written to be a creation science book. It was not written for all the reasons we try to manipulate it into being. It does answer a lot of questions. But the main question it's written to answer is, how did Israel get here? How did we get to a place where God had no people and what did he do to get a people? That's what Moses is answering. Genesis is the backstory to how God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, became God's people. Now, <clears throat> without a backstory, uh, in any literary writing, without a backstory, we get a childish and shallow reading of the piece. In other words, if you just read it, there are words flat on a page, and it's cute, okay, fine, and you just move on. And it has no life impact on you. And I'm afraid that's what Christianity's become. Uh, we, we've, we're seeking out churches for great bands now and how fast they can get me in and out the door. We're not seeking an experience where we can know God better and somebody's holding me accountable and they're trying to disciple me so that I can make disciples and be all that God wants me to be. We've left that version of Christianity in the dust and it has to be reclaimed or Christianity is in big trouble. Big trouble. And so we have to reclaim, we, have, we can't just let the words of the Bible be flat on the page and okay, yeah, I read my, my cute verse for today and I can do all things through God. Okay, let's go get, and that's, it's, we, we've got a very simple and childish view of Christianity today. Without exegesis, without asking some questions, seeking some context and backstory, it just doesn't change your life. It just doesn't make much sense. Uh, let me illustrate in a very childish way because I have a somewhat childish mind at times and childish illustrations help me. Let me illustrate with a nursery rhyme. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, his head, and Jill came tumbling after. Let me ask some questions. This is what exegesis looks like. Ask the questions. At first, simple reading, words flat on the page, it sounds like a story of two people who went uphill to get water. Sounds like a story about having accidents while trying to get water or do your chores. Mom and dad made me do my chores. It hurt me. They're child abusers. That's what the story reads like. I had to do a chore. They put me in a dangerous situation. I hurt myself getting water. Now, the backstory of Jack and Jill is this. It dates back to the year 1567 when Jack and Jill are first found in history. They're found in the court, in an English court as a story. Uh, Jack and Jill show up twice in Shakespeare's plays. 
The rhyme was originally written Jack, J-A-C-K, and Gil, Jill, G-I-L-L. Two men, two males, not a male and a female. Uh, Mother Goose got it. Some more lines were added to it. The story was shaped a little bit. And then by 1765, you've got male Jack and female Jill, and you've got the nursery rhyme that you understand. So just to let you know what exegesis looks like in my mind when I'm approaching a piece of literature, here's what it looks like. So let's ask the exegesis questions. Is the story about a boy and a girl who got hurt while getting water? Is that the story the author's trying to communicate? Why were they sent uphill to get water? Water always runs downhill into the creeks, the valleys, the streams, and the rivers. Did the person who sent them uphill plan for them to get hurt? Were they sent on a fool's errand? Are they being set up? Did Jill set Jack up to get him to the top of the hill? Are they children or are they lovers? Why did Jack fall down? Did Jill lure him to the top of the mountain in order to push him to his demise? What did Jack do wrong that Jill might have had those intentions? Did Jill slip while pushing Jack and also fall and hurt herself? You say, Pastor, you have a wild imagination. Well, this is the way you do exegesis. You dig and dig and ask the questions until you find the answers. Now, you all know the rhyme, right? Do you know the rest of the rhyme? I dug and dug and dug until I found the rest of the rhyme. Here's the rest of the rhyme. The ending lines that you may not know. Sounds like this. Jill and Jack, they made a pact to fix that road the next day. They had the will to tame that hill and make a safer pathway. With stones and sticks and mud and bricks, they built with careful timing. Steps to guide them up the side, the hill that they were climbing. Jack and Jill, they worked until they put the final block on. And there stood high a staircase wide, enough for all to walk on. Now what's the story about? The story now is about suffering adversity while living your life. And from the struggles of your suffering, you go and make a better world so that those who follow you will have to not fall down and crack their crown. It's really a hopeful, and it actually it ends, and they lived happily ever after. Now, that's a little baby version of what exegesis looks like. With a lot of prayer and a lot of struggle, the staff comes together and labors over the Word of God, and with prayer and in struggle with listening to the Holy Spirit, not that we struggle against Him, but we struggle to get ourselves out of the way and listen to his voice and, and hear what he wants the church family to have as we approach Sunday by Sunday and series by series. And as we approach 2022, we're praying, Lord, what do your people need? And what do you want us to feed your people with? And we really feel compelled that in this year, we want to see our church family grow in understanding the Bible. Approach the Bible with different understanding. To move beyond a childish and flat and shallow reading of the Word of God 
and to ask some of the relevant questions that get you to the bigger issue, to the bigger picture of what God is trying to say to you. And that only comes by asking the relevant questions of exegesis. When you're reading Genesis, you're getting the backstory of Israel. And Moses starts with the creation account, tells you what went wrong with the human family, what God now begins to do to get the human story back on track and get creation back on track. And when it gets back on track or doesn't get back on track, what he's going to do next And then what he's going to do next and what he's going to do until he finally forms his own nation, his own people of God who are in a covenant relationship. It's the story of what God's going to do until he finds somebody, somebody, some collection of people who will live for him and who will follow him. Now, Bible literacy is at an all-time low. Uh, It didn't take us but like 30 seconds to Google three headlines. Guys, show me. Why, is our, why are declining biblical literacy matters? Why are so many Christians having trouble reading the Bible? Bible literacy crisis. These are the headlines in the Christian magazines and in the Christian publications. Bible literacy is at an all-time historic low. Let me say it another way. We don't know the story of the Bible and we don't know the characters of the story. And because we don't know the story of the characters, the words lay flat on the page and you just see them and move on and there's nothing, it makes no impact upon your life. Knowing the people's story is what makes it riveting. It is the humanness of the characters that brings out the contrast of the supernatural work of God and makes it so captivating. When you see the broken people and you see the faithful God, And you see the hopeless circumstance. And you see God do this great thing that he's doing. It's their brokenness and their humanness. Standing in contrast to God's greatness and holiness and power. That makes the story what the story is. Now you guys know this. It's no secret if if you've been at Cornerstone for a while. I'm often critical of my tradition. Uh, You guys know I was raised in Baptist pastor's home. My Baptist pastor's mother is sitting right here this morning, and I'm critical often of things that are wrong because it's my privilege, it's my tradition, and I can criticize it if I want to. I show you what's flawed in it and what needs to be reformed in it, and, uh, and I feel like we're doing a great job here of reforming the things that are broken. Not just with the Baptists, but with Church Christ and the Pentecostals and the Methodists, and because we have a broad group of people here this morning Okay, that have come together to be followers of Christ, to learn how to make disciples of Christ. And I'm often critical of my tradition and show you what needs to be fixed. And here's one area where I want to praise my tradition. Maybe you don't hear me do that enough. I want to give a lot of praise to the Baptists because here's what I want to say. And a lot of you grew up Baptist and you'll understand what I'm going to say. As to the matter of Bible characters, the Baptists did a fantastic job. If you were raised in a Baptist church, going to children's church or Sunday school or whatever program your church had for the children, I can tell you this. If you came through the Baptist Sunday school children's church like I did, then you grew up knowing who Adam was and Eve and Cain and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, the twin boys. And you know about Joseph's story, and you know who Moses is, and you know who Joshua is, and you know who Elisha and Elijah are, and and I just could keep going. And you say, where did you learn about all these people in church? 
in a children's program like what's happening in the back right now with your children where they're learning the Word of God. And some of you are off your rotation. I saw Mike come in a minute ago, one of our faithful children's teachers here. Listen, and praise God for the people in our congregation who volunteer in our children's ministries because teaching them this early changes the way they read the Bible as adults. Okay? Now the problem is what happens when we come to Christ as adults, and some of you have only been saved <coughs> weeks or months or a few years. What happens when we come to faith as adults and we don't know the story of these people from the Old Testament? Well, that's the issue, isn't it? Because when you're trying to understand the New Testament, the New Testament writers are constantly going to the Old Testament, that is their Bible, and they're bringing the characters from their Bible... Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Bob, these people, and they're bringing their stories forward <coughs> to the present generation. Since, which means this, if you don't know who the Old Testament characters are, you're not going to understand your New Testament either. Because the New Testament writers are saying, like Abraham, remember Joshua, like, and they keep looking back in the New Testament. So now here we are over here in the modern era, and we're reading the New Testament trying to get God's message, and we have to keep going further back to get the backstory to understand what the New Testament writers are saying. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the dilemma we have in Hebrews. So the writer of Hebrews goes back to the writings of Moses, particularly Genesis, and begins to explain the book of Hebrews based on his or her understanding of the book of Genesis. So... That gets us right to it now. Last week, Jeremy gave an overview of Hebrew so you'd understand the book as you approach it. He did a very skillful job of overviewing the book. Hebrews is one big sermon, and you'll hear me refer to the author, since I don't know who it is, as the preacher. And I'll say the preacher is trying to get you, because it's a sermon, he's trying to pull you in, or the author. It's one big sermon. It reaches its zenith, its climax, around 1112. So let me go to chapter 12 and show you where it starts to just really ring the bell, okay? Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, etc., etc. And we'll get to that later. Later in the study. So my question for you is, who are these witnesses that are surrounding you and who are cheering you and rooting for you and urging you to live by faith and keep your eyes on Jesus? Who are the witnesses that are blazing the trail of living by faith? You see, the Old Testament characters are not behind you. They're actually ahead of you. We look, I always say, let's look back to the Old Testament but really, they're ahead of us. They're the ones who blazed the trail ahead of us. They've already shown us, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they've already shown us how to live by faith. They've already shown us how to deal with adversity. They've already shown us what this living for God, living by faith looks like. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to say to you, you're surrounded by all of these people who have shown you the way. And they would encourage you through their life to keep your eyes on Jesus and to live by faith. Hebrews 11, so you back up one chapter from 12. 
Hebrews 11 is what we call the hall of faith. It lists the men and the women who are examples to us of what living by faith looks like. Now let's answer the thesis question. Are you ready? Here's what chapter 11 is going to do for you. Here's the thesis question. What is faith? We go to chapter 11 to get the answer. Hebrews 11, verse number 1. Put it right up here on the screen for me. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Paul's there. Faith is reality. Give me the root word of that word. Say it again. Faith is, say it again. Faith is what? Now, we think of faith as invisible, it's an emotion, it's, feeling, it's not. Faith is real. This is what the Bible is teaching you. Faith is real. It is the reality of what you can't see. It's the reality of things that are hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Let me see if I can make the definition very simple. Faith is living as though God and the things hoped for are real. Faith is to live my life this week as though God, that I can't see, and the things that I hope for that the Bible talks about, that the Word of God says, are actually real. That's what living by faith is. Faith is living out our present reality that God is real. Living by faith is living this week as if I believe there is going to be a new creation and a resurrection. Faith is me living this week as though I believe that God will judge wickedness and will make things right. Faith is living my life this week with a belief that God will reward us for following Him and living by faith, that God is a rewarder, and that for every dollar I give uh, to, to, the, to the ministry, God will reward me. For every cup of water I give in the name of Jesus, I have a reward. That every kind act that I have done and you have done for widows and orphans, wait till you hear the report next week, for every kind act that we have done, that God says you have a reward for that. Listen, living by faith is living in such a way that we believe God wants us to show love to the people around us. He wants us to be kind to immigrants. That He wants us to make disciples of every nation. Living that way is living by faith. And living that way makes a difference in this world. Why are there so many Christians and yet the world is so little impacted? Because those who claim to be followers of Christ are not living by faith. Faith is the key ingredient. Let me show you what the Apostle John had to say about it. He said when you live this way, when you live like this, it totally changes everything. He said in 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of the Father. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey His commandments. He does not have in view here the Ten Commandments. He's meaning those who live by faith, live by the teachings of Jesus. Verse 3, for this is what love for God is, to keep His commandments... And the commandments are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers this world. Listen, you're supposed to be overcomers, conquerors. You're supposed to be living above the fray. Everyone who lives like this is conquering the world. This is the victory 
that has conquered the world. Our, this is the victory that has conquered the world. Our, our faith. Listen, I, I meet so many Christians that are, how are you doing? Well, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's just going, lots going to hell in the handbasket. I just, I, I just, I, life's terrible. Just complain, complain, bellyache, negative, 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 negative. That is not living by faith. Christians, wake up. This is not spirit-filled living by faith. Spirit-filled living by faith is, yep, the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Praise God. I'm going to let my light shine this week. God's got us. It's all going to be all right. It's all going to work out. Watch how God's going to rescue this mess. Listen, you see the world you live in. $5 gas, a government with no credibility, you know, pandemic sweeping the world, lockdown this, everybody's snapping at everybody, people are hiding behind masks, it's depersonalization, and you're just looking at the world and saying, gosh, what has happened in a few years? Christians should be fearless right now and should be saying, God is in control. It's all going to work out. Listen, God's always worked it out. He's going to work it out. Instead of wringing our hands and saying, we just don't know how, I just don't, I mean, give you, there's only one kind of broccoli on the shelf. I don't know what I'm going to do. God's got you, ladies and gentlemen. Where is your faith? Where is your faith, Christians? Live by faith. God's going to work it out. Do you believe there is a God? That's living by faith. Now live this week as if you believe there's a God. And live this week as if you think he's sitting on the throne of the universe and that he's already conquered sin and death, that he's already rose again, and the new creation is already being inaugurated. He's just working it out, ladies and gentlemen. Let him work it out. It's going to work out. And this is what overcomes the world, even our faith. Now, here's what the Bible's trying to teach us. Faith is the key asset that you need in your life to live for God and please him. And your life is not going to please God if you don't live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 is where these writers in Romans and in Hebrews get their thesis statements. They get it from old Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Now the just shall live by their faith. Live by faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Live by faith. It's the key asset that you need. See here's what we believe. We believe that humanity sinned and plunged this world into a deep brokenness that we are powerless to fix by human effort. That's what we believe. Sin broke this world. And by faith, we believe that God will step in and He will take full responsibility to put the world back right again. We are not going to fix it. God is going to fix it. And He's going to work it out through His people, the church of Jesus Christ. But it's only going to work out through us if we're living by faith and we understand what the story is and what our place in the story is. We believe, now I'm going to shock some of you, hardcore right-wing Baptists. <clears throat> we believe that God actually loves this physical planet. We believe God loves the creation he made. We believe it's very special to God and he wants us to be stewards of it. And he's going to remake it and give it a resurrection, but he loves the material world he made. I'll tell you something else we believe. We believe that God loves the humanity that he made. And sometimes we think, well, yeah, God loves us Christians. No, you're missing the point. 
God loves all the humans that he made. For God so loved them that he gave his son to die for them. Which ones of them? All of them. And when you get the story right and you start seeing the big picture, so God wants us to love people. And God wants us to love the world he made. And God wants us to be good stewards of that. And God wants us to reach out to the people because they're the most important thing ever. And we believe that God will rescue the planet. And we believe that God will rescue our loved ones and give them a new body and a new life on this earth. And we believe that God's going to rescue us. And we believe that God is going to make us more gloriously human than we've ever been. That's what we believe. So that's what faith is. It's living as if God's real. So what is the result of living by faith? Next verse, Hebrews 11, 2. For by it, by faith, our ancestors won God's what? His approval. Now, would you like to live a life that God approves of? The only way you can live a life God approves of is live by faith. This is how simple this is. Let's not make it this part hard. Our ancestors lived by faith, and because they lived by faith, they won God's approval. What do you think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to his New Testament audience? I think he's trying to say to them, go thou and do likewise. Does that not make sense? See, here's how they won God's favor. That has not changed. Salvation is still by faith. Living is still by faith. Go and do likewise, Hebrew audience. You say, Pastor, why do you bring this up? Because I'm trying to do the same thing the writer of Hebrews is doing. I'm trying to bring it all the way now to 2022 and put it in front of God's people and say, you know how we can please God this year? We're going to have to live by faith. We're going to have to walk like these people walked. It's by faith that we win God's approval. Now, living by faith, as I said earlier, is different than coming to church on Sunday and giving assent to a set of beliefs. If you say, yeah, I have a set of beliefs, that's not necessarily living by faith. That's just subscribing to a set of beliefs. To live by faith, faith is the reality. It's living it out in your real life as if you believed a certain set of beliefs. And the, the writer of Hebrews, the pastor, is trying to challenge us to live out our lives tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as if we actually believe that God is real and that he is pleased by us walking by faith. Now, here's what the pastor is about to do. He's given you the definition of what faith is. And now the pastor is about to show his audience what it looks like by using examples. Here's a word definition of faith. Now let me show you a living example of what faith looks like in people's lives. And so the, the pastor in Hebrews is about to bring out a parade of people. And this is who we're going to study in a few weeks. He's going to bring out a parade of people now. And he's going to show you their lives and how they lived by faith. And in order to do it, he goes all the way back to the primeval world. So let's talk about the primeval world. Primeval, primordial, means way back. I mean, way back, as far back as you can go back, is primeval. And so the author of Hebrews takes this giant leap back towards the beginning of civilization, back towards the beginning. And you know he's going to have to go to Genesis to do that, right? So that's where he's about to take us, to the first three pages of your Bible. And the first witness is actually not a person. The first witness that's being paraded out is actually creation itself. Creation is the first witness. Here we go, Hebrews eleven three. They all begin with the statement, by faith. By faith... We understand that the universe was created by what? 
That's invisible. My words are coming out right now, invisible through the air. We believe that the world was made, the universe was made by the Word of God, so that what is seen, the world around us, what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Now here's where your first struggle with living by faith comes from, the first three pages of your Bible. In order to live by faith, by faith we believe in the creation account as the explanation for how the world and the people got here. This is what followers of God, this is what people of faith believe. We believe that God, the world was made by God, spoken into existence. And what is seen came into being by something, the Word of God, which is not visible. That is our explanation for the world. The material world had a supernatural beginning. If you get into this conversation with anybody, just ask them what the first cause is. You say, well, it came from a big bang. Okay, what caused the big bang? Some gases, some this. Okay, where did they come from? Okay, where did that come from? Okay, and where did that come from? Okay, and where did that come from? And okay, where did that come from? You have to have a first cause. Eventually, you have to say, and here's the origin. Here's the genesis. Here's the beginning where it came from. Tell what the Bible says that beginning is. It says that beginning goes back to God. And we believe by faith, the opening lines of the Bible, that God has revealed himself all through the scriptures as a creator first. And by faith we accept and live in the reality that this world belongs to God. He is the creator and we belong to God. We are his creation. And he is the suzerain and we are the vassal kings. Yes, we have dominion, but only because it's been given to us by God, the great king. And by faith we accept and live in that reality every day. We live our lives as though Genesis was true. Now here's what that means. It means that humanism cannot be your philosophy because man cannot be the creator or the center of all things. Man is not the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate reality. So humanism cannot be your philosophy. Pantheism cannot be your philosophy because God has to be transcendent, separate from his... He is not creation. He is not the sun, the wind. God is not the leaves and the streams. He is transcendent from his creation, separate from it. So pantheism goes out the window. Atheism cannot be our worldview because to live in denial of God does not please God. That's what we're seeing from the scripture. Anything other than living with the reality that God is creator and we are his creation and we are responsible to take care of his creation, which means our our own beings, our own selves, and the creation that he made, anything other than that wins God's disapproval. To live in the reality that God is creator is to live by faith, and faith wins God's approval. So now what the pastor does is he pulls three human examples of living by faith from the antediluvian world. Now let me introduce you to a new world, new word, antediluvian. Uh, if I talk in poker terms, I know I can communicate to this congregation. <laughs> Ante up, and I'll deal the cards. It means you're going to put money up front right now, and you're ready to play the game. For Texas Hold'em people, blind. Put the blind on the table. I'll deal the cards. Here we go. It means anti, anti, before, anti up. 
antediluvian. Diluvian means the flood. So when you're reading Bible books and you're doing exegesis, if you see the words, uh, and now he speaks of antediluvian, and you're like, what in the world is that? All it means is pre-flood, before the flood of Noah, which is about Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. That's next week's sermon. So now, antediluvian examples. And so the Hebrews writer masterfully goes all the way back and says, let me start with antediluvian witnesses. And the first antediluvian witness is a guy named Abel. Now, pastors make a bad uh, mistake in the modern era. We preach and we say things like, the writer here is talking about Abraham and, and you know Abraham's story. Or the writer here is talking about Abel and you know Abel's story. Here's what I've come to discover. People come up to me after the sermon and say, I don't know Abel's story. Could you tell it to me? So this is exactly what we're doing right now. Here is Abel. Now, let me read Hebrews 11:4, how the preacher uses Abel, and then I'll go read a story from Genesis. Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, there's our key words, he was, there's the word, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts and even though he is dead he still speaks through his faith so let's run over to genesis and let's read what it says about abel his story is found in genesis 4 if you're taking notes genesis 4 1 the man this is adam the man adam was intimate with his wife eve and she conceived and gave birth to cain firstborn she said I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks. Cain's a farmer. He worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Cain brings an offering of grain. Abel brings an offering of lambs, animals. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Let me ask you a question. If Cain would do what's right, would God accept him? Isn't that wonderful? You see, this is why we believe in the free will of men. We believe people can choose. God's given him another opportunity to choose. Cain, if you just do what I asked, if you do this the right way, listen, you don't have to, be, you don't have to fall into sin here. Don't be angry. Don't be upset. Listen, just do what is right. But if you do not do what is right, Listen, sin's like a tiger crouching at the door, and it is, desire, it is a desire for you, but you must rule over it. Rule over that sin. Put that urge down and do what is right. And Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, bro, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. First murder recorded in the Bible. Then the Lord said to Cain, hey, <coughs> Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Now in the old KJV, you know the words, the ancient words in the old English Bible. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? You know, that question is always asked in literature and in society as if we're not our brother's keeper. The answer to the question was, yes, you are. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are supposed to care for your brother. This was the teaching of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Yes, you are responsible for your neighbor. I wish we could get the Christian community to realize we are responsible for discipling this community. We are responsible for letting our light shine. We are responsible for letting our our witness show. We are responsible for walking by faith at work tomorrow or at school tomorrow or in the community tomorrow. This is what God wants us to do. Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. My job to watch him today? God said, well, let me tell you what. Verse 10. What have you done? Now, God already knows, of course. It's rhetorical. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Such dramatic wording right there. Your brother's blood cries to me from the earth, from the ground. Now, here's the real story. Regardless of what you've been taught about this, let me give you the real story. We don't know what the deal is with the offering. Now, we can speculate. I've been taught a bunch of different things. One was by faith and one wasn't. That's the ultimate thing here. Because this is what the author is telling us. One offering was approved and one was not approved. The writer of Hebrews is saying one gave in faith and one didn't give in faith. One maybe was the works of hands and one was a, a work of a living being. Maybe that was the deal. Listen, I can speculate all day long. Uh, maybe God asked for a living sacrifice and instead he brought fruit and vegetables and grain. We just don't know. Because even in the Old Testament law system, there is a sheaf offering a a shock of wheat offering there is grain offering there is an oil offering there's a meal offering but there's also lamb ox type offerings okay there is both in the old testament law and we don't know what's going on here so don't try to over here's my point don't try to read into the story what moses doesn't want to communicate to you moses is not communicating to you anything about that he doesn't want to communicate anything to you about that What Moses wants to communicate to you is one gave in faith what God wanted and one was not approved of God because clearly sin lied at the door and he did not do something right about the offering. Is that fair? It really makes me wonder about my own giving. You know what God wants? He wants your giving to be of faith. If you can round it to the nearest cent, maybe it's not giving by faith. Is that fair? I want my giving to please God. All right, I give by faith then. I want my life to please God. All right, I'm going to live by faith then. That doesn't mean reckless. It means trusting God as if God is real. Now, the author, Moses, doesn't tell us all about the details of the offering. Uh, you know, I've even heard preach that one was an offering and one was a sacrifice, and that's maybe legitimate. Uh, you know, uh, the best illustration I've heard, you know, the farmer and his wife were discussing the breakfast menu and, you know, they decided they would have bacon and, and, and eggs for breakfast. The chicken and the pig, they got wind of what the breakfast menu was going to be, and they had a little conference. The chicken was totally chill, laid back, relaxed. The pig was totally stressed out. The chicken says, pig, why are you so nervous? What's going on with you today? You know, the pig said to the chicken this, for you, it's just an offering. But for me, it's going to be a sacrifice. Maybe that's the illustration we need. I don't know. 
the author of Genesis doesn't give us all the information. Here's what we know. One offered God something and faith it was received, and one offered something and by faith it was not, no lack of faith it was not received, and one got angry and murdered his brother, and God says, what in the world have you done? We have just barely got our feet out of the Garden of Eden now, and you're already, we have a murder on our hands with the first two brothers on, on planet Earth. And, and, and because of jealousy, because of envy, because of anger, and Jesus even used this in his preaching, Matthew 23. Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees who have murdered the prophets and who are about to murder Jesus eventually. And he says to them, he holds Abel up as a type of all of the, those uh, Christians, godly, who have been murdered by the ungodly. And history is filled with names. And, and faces, okay? And Jesus uses Abel in Matthew 25 as an example. God says to the, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the blood of all the martyrs and the prophets are on your hands starting from Abel all the way to such and such a person because y'all have killed the prophets and you're going to probably do that to me too. And, and that's the conversation. So Abel is more than just the first brother, the first murder. He stands as an example of all people who are murdered uh, by unrighteous people for living by faith. Now here's what we believe. Because of sin, this world is broken that we live in. That's what we know. Good people are killed. It's a reality. Murder has touched the lives of people we minister to in this own congregation. It is a reality. You say, but how in the world do we live and not be pessimists? I'll tell you how. Because we live believing that God will make this right. We believe by faith in God that when we are faced with persecution and murder and injustice and violence or any mistreatment that God sees it and God knows what's going on and God will make it right. Now quickly let me give you the second example and he's my last one this morning. The other antediluvian example that comes next is Enoch. Enoch's fascinating character. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death. Okay, that's got my attention. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was what? Approved as one who pleased God. Well, then I know he's walking by faith if he's approved. Six, now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, just really quickly, let me give you the story of Enoch. It won't take but a second because there's hardly anything said in the Bible about Enoch. The story of Enoch is found in chapter 5 of Genesis, the next chapter. Cain and Abel, chapter 4. Enoch, chapter 5. <coughs> Genesis 5, 19. It's a genealogy list. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch. Here he comes. And he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 and he died. Enoch was 65 years old, and he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. You say, I want more information. <laughs> the Bible's not going to give you any. That's it. That's all they gave you. You say, why? Because Moses is not trying to talk about uh, uh, translation or rapture. That's not the book Moses is writing. Why is Moses writing Genesis? It's backstory to how Israel got there. He's not trying to give you the backstory of Enoch. 
He's just telling you Enoch is a character in, in the drama as it unfolds. There are two people in the Old Testament that are taken to the heavenly realm without tasting death, and that is Elijah, chariot of fire, another story, and Enoch. If you want more explanation, the Bible does not offer any. Enoch's testimony is that while living in a wicked and lawless time in human history, after Cain and Abel and at the pre-flood era, Enoch lived in a time of lawlessness and a turbulent, wild, wild west time in human history. And in that period of history, Enoch is singled out as someone who pleased God. And the only way to please God is to live by faith and to believe that God exists and that God rewards those who seek him. And by the fifth page in your Bible, by chapter 5, a pattern begins to emerge in the Bible. By the fifth page, a pattern now begins to emerge in your Bible. Here is a world filled with violence and rape and slavery and war and injustice. And those who are stronger do whatever they want to to the weaker. And when the world goes mad with rebellion against God, there is always a faithful remnant walking by faith. It may be one person, it may be eight people, it may be a handful of people, but one or more righteous people will be found now in any period in the story who are living by faith. And God will preserve them and God will protect them and he will eventually use their lives to turn the human story around and try to get it back on track. See, if you were taught history in an institution of, of learning, you were taught it from the point of view of the conquerors. Here, here, here's Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> here, here's the uh, Medes and Persians, Darius, Cyrus, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, here comes uh, 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 Alexander the Great and the four generals that followed him. And, and here, here are the great kingdoms of the world. Here comes Julius Caesar and his son, the first emperor, his stepson, stepson, Augustus Caesar. And here comes Rome and here comes Napoleon and here comes Charlemagne. Here comes the great conqueror. History is told to us, this king, this president, this conqueror. That's not the way God is telling his story. God is telling his story through other characters. Characters who walk by faith. He's saying the story is really about faithful followers of God who make up the story of humanity, of how God rescues creation and rescues the human race and eventually makes everything right through his people. Not through the great conquerors of the world, but through the people who walk and live by faith. In the antediluvian world, Enoch is one of those followers of God. Jude, now let's stay in the New Jude is Jesus' brother. Jude, the Lord's brother, who wrote a book that bears his name near the end of your New Testament, the book of Jude. Jude wrote about Enoch in his short book. You'll find a reference to Enoch in the book of Jude. And Enoch called, Jude called Enoch a primeval prophet. That's what he called him, a prophet of God, an ancient prophet now, if you heard last week's podcast, uh, or two weeks ago podcast, where Jeremy and I talked about the apocryphal books. Did anybody get any wind of that? Get podcast getting any traction out there? We were talking about the apocryphal books and how they fit with Scripture. That's something that all of you should know. You say, well, we reject the apocryphal books. Okay, it's a longer conversation than that. But here's what you need to know. Jude is quoting the apocryphal books. Listen to what Jude, Jesus' brother, said in Jude, verse 14. It was about these 
that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, look, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints, his holy ones. Jude, the brother of Jesus, is quoting the book of, apocryphal book of Enoch. Enoch 1, verse number 9. Now that's interesting. Maybe I'll pull some more. I'll talk more about that in the podcast this week. How about that? But I just want you to know, Jude's quoting the book of Enoch, which isn't in your Bible. And Enoch, what's being written about Enoch is that he was an ancient prophet, preacher, who told his generation, listen, the Lord's going to judge you if you don't do right. The Lord cares how we live. We need to walk by faith. And they didn't hear his message. And he preached about the Lord returning. And he preached about judgment. You say, well, did he live in the end times? He was the seventh from Adam. Imagine a guy seven from Adam preaching about the Lord's return and judgment and God wants us to live by faith. So here's what the pastor in Hebrews is trying to communicate to you. He's trying to get you to re-examine your worldview and re-examine your philosophy of living. And here's the question the writer of Hebrews wants to ask you. Are you living by faith, Cornerstone? Are you right now, 2022, living by faith? Do you live each day As if the Lord is in control of your life and regardless of what you're going to experience, say God is in control, He sees, and He will ultimately make it right for you. Do you go to work each day or to school each day with the belief that God is real and that if I do my best to live for Him today, He will reward those who live by faith? All of us will be faced with some form of discrimination or injustice or violence or mistreatment in this world. This is what Peter talks about. This is what the New Testament writers talk about all the time. All those that live godly shall suffer persecution. Listen, at some point in life, you're going to get sick. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to suffer some injustice. And we need to come to grips, ladies and gentlemen, that a world in rebellion to its creator will never make sense. Outside of faith in God. If you're trying to say, well, it's just not fair, you're right. You say, well, it just doesn't make sense. You got that right. You say, well, it's just not right that the world should be the, it's just not right that I should be, you're exactly right. But a world in rebellion to its creator will not make sense. The only thing you can do is live by faith that God is going to work it out. He is going to make all things new. He is going to make all things right. Now let me put a wrap on it. Today you at least opened the door and started your walk down the hall of faith. And you've already met some people who are real examples of what it means to live by faith. But the pastor and this pastor is asking you to go a little further than that. Don't just hear their stories. You have a chance to do much more than observe them. You have a chance to take your place right beside them. I want you to think about this. You have a chance this morning to walk right beside these people because God wants you to be a part of this story of the people of faith. The preacher is inviting you to come and stand in community solidarity with these people. Let me say it a simpler way. The invitation this morning is, won't you come and live by faith also? See these great cloud of witnesses? See what happened to them? Lives cut short, lived in a wild world, 
And what did they do? They still walked by faith, knowing that God was in control and he will ultimately work it all out. And when I say you come stand by them, sometimes you think, well, these are the hall of faith. And these people are being held up. Listen, these people are not being put on a pedestal as though you can't reach it. As a matter of fact, these people are very flawed, very broken. And the writer is not saying these people are so out of your league you can never be these people. The writer is actually saying the exact opposite. The writer is saying, I want you to come and stand beside Enoch and Abel. I want you to come take your place with Enoch and Abel. Yes, here's the hall of faith. And then here should be your picture next and your story placed into the record next. See, you have their stories. God wants to put your story right in here with their story. You are these people of faith. Let me ask you. Let's just do a little internal poll. You don't have to answer out loud if you don't want, but let me ask you, has God taken care of your needs? Has God protected you through violent times? And has God given you peace through these upheaval that you're living through right now? You see the whole world just, la, 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 and look at God's people just calm and at peace and living by faith, knowing that God's going to work all of this out. Do you actually believe this morning that God will make it right? I do. You see, you come from a long line of people spiritually who endured through suffering. And the message from God to you this morning is that God's got you. You will... Listen, I hear young people sometimes say, I'm walking away from my faith. I'm not sure I believe in God. It really doesn't matter how you live is what they're really saying. I want to live like everybody else I see living out, like out in the world. And it doesn't matter how you live. It does matter how you live. By faith you win God's approval. He wants us to live as though we believe the Word of God is true and that God is real. And when you live that way, you're going to experience a flood of joy in your heart. And you're going to realize that this is the way God has always intended for us to live. And that we're going to put our record in with their record that God's going to make this world right. And He's going to create a new world and He's recreating a new humanity to enjoy with God forever. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to make some decisions with me this morning. Jeremy, if you'd just come and play for us silent, uh, just quietly here this morning. Let me ask you to make some decisions before you go home today. We're talking about living a life of faith. Listen carefully to my words. A journey of faith must begin with the step of faith. You've got to take the first steps. If you want to live a life of faith, you have to start with step and the first step of faith is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior maybe you've struggled maybe God brought you here just for this moment because you've been struggling with whether the Bible story is actually true and the Holy Spirit of God is confirming to your heart this morning that there is a God he did send his son to die for you he does love you he does want you to be a part of his faithful, forgiven family. If you're ready to receive him as your savior this morning, put your faith in him. In your heart and mind, let faith arise and believe. It helps to confirm that belief by articulating a prayer.
maybe you should pray right now along with me. If faith is there in your heart, express it to God. Pray, pray like this. Dear God, God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I've been struggling with my belief, and this morning I, I do believe. I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. He rose in, raised him from the dead. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he's exactly who the Scripture declares him to be. I want to call you my King and my Lord, and so the best way that I know how, I want to express that I believe the message of the Bible, and I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, come into my heart, come into my life, be the Lord and King of my life. I want to live for you. I want to live by faith. I want my life to please you. And I pray that it will fill me with your spirit from this moment forward. And this I ask in Jesus' name. While Christians are thinking about their own lives for a moment this morning, Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Christian, you are being invited to take your place in the hall of faith by choosing to live by faith this week. God is inviting you to place your story right there with everybody else. Your story will say something like this, by faith you face cancer and you believed God would heal you and you prayed for that and for many of you God did heal you. For some God chose not to heal you but either way you decided you were going to live by faith knowing that God would give you a glorified body in the resurrection and would work it all out eventually. All of you could say, by faith, we faced a global pandemic. We kept on giving, we kept on going, we kept on worshiping, we kept on assembling, we kept on making disciples right through the global pandemic. And we came out the other side without ever missing a beat. And they did it because they believed God would work it all out. Our story should read, and the people at Cornerstone invested in the work of the Lord, rather than chase the material comforts of this world, because those people believed that God's eternal kingdom was more important than temporal comforts. By faith, we took our place with other men and women of faith because we believed the Word of God. By faith, we rejected the philosophies of this world. And by faith, we chose to live by the teachings of Jesus Christ because He is real and His Word is true. And if we would live that way, we will please God. He will approve of that. And you're going to discover that this is what living is all about. This is real humanity. You're going to discover that faith will sustain you. Faith will sustain you. 
through financial loss. Faith will sustain you through sickness. Faith will sustain you when you're separated from your loved ones. Faith will sustain you when your unemployment is a reality. Faith will sustain you and God will give you the job that you need. Faith will always sustain God's people through the greatest of difficulties because God is real and His Word is true. And if you believe that, I want you to say it to God right now in your heart. You offer that word to God from your own heart right now and say God I do believe listen if you don't have a lot of words to say to God at least say this God I do believe I do I believe you are real I believe your word is true God help me to believe more he'll help you He'll help you. Father, bless your people as they make decisions and commitments to you right now to live by faith this week. Lord, thank you for your word that illuminates and enlightens us. Lord, may this feed us all week long until we can be together. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.